You're listening to the Conspiracy Theorist Survival Guide Podcast. Hey, if your journey down the proverbial rabbit hole has cost you friends and family, or maybe it's just convinced your loved ones that you're a little bit crazy, this podcast is for you. Nothing's off limits. We're going to cover it all from a biblical worldview. There's going to be humor, insight, and validation for your journey. So join us as we learn to walk through this crazy world as a Christian truther, as we shed every ounce of willful ignorance so we can fulfill our destiny and leave a legacy. This is me. This is John. I'm going to be your host today for the Conspiracy Theorist Survival Guide podcast. I really do look forward to this. It's like my therapy group. It's like my support group. You all, all of you people. The title of my talk today is The Ramifications of the Supernatural Bible Changes. It's really going to be a therapy session for any kind of truth or concept, though. I hope you'll stay with me. Maybe you don't believe that the Mandela effect is real. That's okay. I'm an equal opportunity truther channel. I accept all different worldviews. I have called this the unimaginable problems that the Bible changes will cause for Christians, but it's just too many syllables. Anyway, I think you get the idea, and I think you're going to find this talk very stimulating. So I ask you to stay with me. You may even find it to be revelatory. I like that term, don't you? You know, I used to go to bed and I would read one page of the dictionary every night. It really changed my life. The average person only uses about 10,000 words. Maybe the PhD college professor might use 20,000. There's over 800,000 words in the English language. Come on, let's get on with it. But I use that term revelatory, I feel so theological. It makes me feel like I'm so advanced in my knowledge, revelatory. I know that's probably not a healthy thing, but my dysfunction may serve as a stark reminder that we are all in a search for significance. I think you'd agree with that. From cradle to grave, baby, you are looking for the next goosebump. Because think about it, when you're five, you're always going to say, look what I can do. Look what I can do. Are you watching? Are you watching? And so if you're honest with yourself, you really never stop doing that. It's just that as you get older, the terminology changes. Because we all know it's inappropriate for an adult to be looking at everybody in the room going, look what I can do. And they'd be like, what's your problem, bro? But we still act out the same way to get people to look at what we can do as adults. So, for instance, if you're wealthy, you might find yourself being tempted to brag about it. Maybe you drive a Porsche just so you can pull up to the light in your Porsche. And maybe there's a part of you that's just still saying, look what I can do. Huh? Come on. 
Think about it. A lot of us have created an identity around some external ego, some thought frames, but that's not really who you are. Who you are is who God created in the womb when he sent that spirit into that body and it became a living soul. Poof. That essence, that, that created being that is non-corporal, that's who you are. And you're in a body and then you have thoughts, but then the thoughts become who you are. So you meet somebody at a party and say, oh, this is my friend Bill. Oh, and you say, oh, Bill, nice to meet you. What do you do? So first of all, you identify with Bill, and then you identify with your vocation, and then your ethnicity, and then your hobbies, and you have this whole framework of these external thought frames, which is what you are, but that's not what you are. You've chosen to identify yourself with those things. But it's time to get in touch with the eternal essence of who we are. That eternal essence, that, that non-corporal part of us that's in relation to God, the God that created it. Because the Bible teaches that your essence is going to be brought before this creator at the great white throne judgment when it's all said and done. And that essence better have its essence together, dear soul, or else that essence is going to be cast summarily into the lake of fire. For whosoever's name was not found in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And first time I read that, I was really shocked because casting is not like, okay, all right, you didn't, you didn't pass the test. You got to go down here now. I'm sorry. No, it's like, get out. It's, you're summarily tossed out. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry to be the one to tell you. <laughs> Maybe not what you were hoping for on the way to work this morning or wherever you may be as you're listening to me. But this is an aspect of God that is clearly revealed in the Bible. And Paul even said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So if you'd like to make your peace with God, you could do it right now, wherever you are, even if you're driving to work. You're just listening somewhere. Just say his name. Say Jesus. Just start to talk with Jesus and then just surrender everything. Surrender all your good deeds first. Your good deeds won't save you. Most people don't feel like they deserve hell. And once you've admitted that you'll never actually be good enough, that you could never possibly keep the Ten Commandments and whatever God would require you to do under the law, you can ask for forgiveness for your bad stuff after that. And then you can just get on with living for him. It's the best way to go. It's the only way. You know. You know what I'm saying. Stop drinking from the cup of devils. It, it doesn't do it. Right? It doesn't satisfy. It never has and it never will. You could drink that cup to the bottom. And you'll just be left with leanness of soul. That's what it says about the children of Israel. They were demanding things from God. And he said he gave them exactly what they wanted, but he sent leanness of soul into them. So how's your soul today? How's your soul doing? Do you have the sap of God in your bones or are you just quivering? You know, you're just like feeling like you're not enough. What you have is enough. Nothing is enough. You're always looking around for the next thing. It's in Christ, man. It's in Christ. That's where you're going to feel like you've arrived. 
Anyway, I've got some headlines for us before we get into the talk today. So with no further delay, let me give you the Sons of Issachar update. Just a few headlines for you on the way to work or wherever you might be. I see that they, uh, according to Zero Hedge, according to the Zero Hedge, House impeaches Mayorkas in a historic vote. That bug-eyed devil, I'm not really sure what any of this means anymore. If, one, if they take one of their bad guys down, is it just to, to try to pr propagate the show that they're actually doing something so we don't get the pitchforks and go storm the Bastille? I mean, from our view, like, we see these people like Mearchus who's, you know, they tried to impeach him and they couldn't because there weren't enough votes. And we're thinking, who would, who would vote not to impeach this guy? But finally, some other guy came back and they were able to impeach him. He's the head of Homeland Security. So he's allowing a thousand illegal immigrants pour over the border every day. I'm sorry, 10,000. It's a nightmare. And then, of course, Chuck Schumer is on the podium saying Biden's mental acuity is great. Cognitive decline rumors are a white right wing propaganda. Well, that, you know, he would have to have mental decline to be able to try to put that forward. But we know it's not that he's just a lying sack of dog biscuits. And this is the kind of thing we watch. Biden is so cringeworthy, I can't even bear to watch this guy fumbling through these uh, talks he's doing, and then nobody takes him down. I mean, this is the head of the most powerful corporation in the world, and he's bumping into walls, right? And then, of course, you've got a Democratic Republican a representative, I'm sorry, Barbara Lee of California, defends her plan to impose a $50 minimum wage for California businesses. <laughs> uh, I think it was Margaret Thatcher said, the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. I mean, come on, man, 50 bucks an hour for working at Mickey D's. I would go over there. I'd flip some burgers for 50, wouldn't you? <laughs> that is outrageous. So, of course, you know, they care about all the workers, but what about the company owners who put it all on the line, they've risked everything, mortgaged their house, worked 80 hours a week, and then you're going to come and just decimate their business. They'll be out of business. $50 an hour. Come on. What are these people thinking? They can't be that naive or that incompetent. This is a takedown of the system. Let's call it for what it is. All right, but the last thing I'm going to cover is a bombshell. Now, this is from an article by Jamie White, appeared on a number of different platforms. Uh, the New York Supreme Court has reinstated Democrat Governor Kathy Hochul's power to detain citizens in the entire state of New York in so-called quarantine camps indefinitely. Now, this one is very dear to my heart because my dear wife, who divorced me after 24 years of marriage, wrote in my diary that the idea that we are in danger of being taken away to a COVID camp is ridiculous. And she was actually born in New York and all of her family lives in New York. And now they're under essentially uh, a law, it's law 2.13, isolation of quarantine procedures in New York State. Listen to this. 
The Fourth Department of New York's Supreme Court's Appellate Division on Friday overturned a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the quarantine. Okay, so she, Hochul tried to put this into play and it was accepted and then lawyers sued and overturned it and then they appealed and a higher court agreed with Hochul and they put it back into place. So it's, it's going to be, it's, it's going to probably stay. So this nightmare scenario allows the Department of Health to pick and choose which New Yorkers they can lock up or lock down without any proof that you're sick, without any proof you've been exposed to communicable disease. The regs say they can knock at your door, ex parte, no hearing, no due process, no right to contact anyone, no evidence needed, no rights, nothing, no appeal. You have a right to review after you've been locked up. So it is guilty until proven innocent. The law reads as follows. Whenever appropriate to control the spread of a highly contagious communicable disease, which, by the way, doesn't have to be. It could be Lyme's disease. It could be anything they decide is a threat. The state commissioner of health, who I have no contract with, by the way, who appointed this guy to be czar over my life? Anyway, the state commissioner of health may issue and or may direct the local health authority to issue isolation and quarantine orders consistent with due process of law. No, it's not. It's a violation of every known law. To all such persons, the State Commission of Health shall determine appropriate. So then it goes on to say, for the purposes of isolation orders, isolation locations may include home, isolation or such other residential or temporary housing location that the public health authority issuing the order determines appropriate where symptoms or conditions indicate that medical care in general hospital is not expected to be required so they can come in the middle of the night and take you out with a bag over your head and put you in some camp and there's nothing you can do about it here's some of the of the uh, wording the order goes on to say that they will monitor such person to ensure compliance with the order and determine whether such a person requires a higher level of medical care. There you go. There is your, we can take you and then we can force vaccinate you. It also goes on to say, wherever appropriate, coordinate with local law enforcement to ensure that such persons comply with the order. Let me translate that for you. They'll come to your house at gunpoint. They're going to coordinate with local law enforcement that's corrupt. There's no time limit, so they can lock you up and lock you down for days, weeks, or months. There's no location restriction. They can put you in any facility that they want. And once you're there, there's no procedure in this regulation that says you can get out of quarantine once you're in there. And they can essentially administer whatever medical treatment they choose. Welcome to the New World Order. If you're a conspiracy theorist kook, you've been completely vindicated because this is no longer just Australia or Canada. This is right here at home, in place, fully operational, complete medical martial law. Thank you very much. And of course, if this is allowed to continue somehow, then of course you're going to start to see it popping up in all the other democratic states at first. And off we go into the noose tightening around the neck a little bit further and so i urge folks to make their peace with god and do something
That's what D.L. Moody said. Do something. I think it was Peter that said, true and undefiled religion is this, keep yourself unspotted from the world and help the widows or something like that. So essentially there's the spiritual part of your Christianity and then there's the do something part of your Christianity. <laughs> okay, so if you'd like to get involved, come on. Come on, reach out to me. John at wakeuporelse.com. That's my email. I want to hear from you. All right, so without further ado, I'm going to transition to our talk today, which has many titles, but it's basically the ramifications of the Bible changes are really a big problem. Okay, how do you like that for a title? Here we go. The unimaginable challenges created by the Mandela effect for followers of Christ. Basically, I wanted to share some of these things that I've been thinking about when I'm going through and especially with my kids. And then I've been finding out what a lot of other people are going through because I'm talking to you. And of course, we're talking about the consequences or the ramifications of the Mandela effect upon our lives. The quantum effect, the Amos 8 prophecy, whatever you want to call it, our reality is shifting. You know, I just say to the unconvinced that may be listening, if if we are all deceived, as you believe we are in our minds, I mean, we do seem to be in possession of a lot, a lot of evidence that we aren't deceived. And we're in a possession of a lot of empirical evidence that the unconvinced don't seem to have any answers for. So... Even if it is just misremembering, as you keep saying, we don't believe you. Basically, we don't believe you. And so our corporate experience, even if you're right, this whole group of hundreds of thousands or millions of people all claiming the same thing is a phenomenon in and of itself. So you can't rationalize this as some you know, naturalistic thing a bunch of feeble-minded people bumping into each other on the internet. It's millions of people. I mean, you've got you've got movies about it now, you've got Fox News covering it, you have major magazines, Popular Mechanics, Good Housekeeping, uh three or four other major magazines doing big spreads on the Mandela effect, all right? So it's not a little thing. And so the problem that you have, unbeliever, is that all of us are remembering this, this, these things the same way. They're all, we're all remembering the same way, and it's statistically impossible. And so, you know, we're freaked out. It's messing up our lives for some more than others. And so we're here sort of as a support group for one another. We're seeking answers from God so we can survive all the ramifications of this phenomenon. Because basically, it's like being in an earthquake. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake before, but I was in an earthquake once um, when I was in California. I'll never forget it. It was Sunday night. It was 10 after 6 on Sunday night. I was watching MASH. I'll never forget this. And the house just started going back and forth. Like It wasn't going up and down. It was undulating back and forth. And it was very unsettling because, you know, you're like, what do I do? You know, I guess I could have run out of the house. But even if you're in an open field, the field starts opening up beneath you, you know, where do you run, right? And so in a way, 
That's sort of what this Mandela effect feels like. There's nowhere to run. The very reality that we've always held to be fairly linear, the past is the past, now I'm in the present, and then there's the future. I mean, that's all out the window. All of that linear fixed thinking is out the window because whoever's pushing the levers can actually change history. And this is why I believe we hear this exclamation from the entire world in the future that we read about in the book of Revelation, a future prophecy yet to be fulfilled or possibly being fulfilled as we speak, Revelation 13, 3. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? What would possess people to say that? I mean, if you could press a button and change history, that's a tough road to hold. You, you know, how are you going to deal with that guy? We've always believed that things were fixed and solid. And, you know, how did they change history? And then you just find out it's going presto magico on you. And whew, you're basically everything you believed in is just being eviscerated. And then, of course, those around you think you're nuts, which just pours gasoline on the fire. This topic is very toxic. It's very polarizing. So we're, <laughs> we're trying to protect God's honor while we talk about this. But we're perceived as blasphemers. The Bible has a, has a very exalted reputation. But what we're struggling with is that our relationship with the Bible has become very strained. I'm sorry, King James only Baptist Bible teacher, person. I'm sorry, but the Bible is being weaponized. It's a very difficult relationship that we're having with our Bibles. It, in a weird way, it sort of reminds me of this girl I dated in high school. She was a cheerleader, and I loved her. She was beautiful, but she was nuts. <laughs> I'm sorry. I always felt like I had to break up with her, but I couldn't ever bring myself to do it. And if that analogy seems blasphemous, I know it, it seems blasphemous to me too, but it's because the Bible is being blasphemed from the inside out, and, and the unconvinced are ignoring it. So we're trying to shout a little bit to get your attention. We're trying to reason with you in what is so obvious to us. But, you know, when it came down to this girlfriend, it, what it was was I didn't trust her. And I do believe that's how many of us have come to view our Bibles now to some degree. I still do trust my Bible, the parts that I'm familiar with. But, I mean, how could you go to these obscure books in the Bible, Zephaniah or Zechariah? Are you going to go read Obadiah, you know, and you're going to like you know, believe that what you're reading is from the Lord. If you don't know the Bible passages, you don't even know if it's God's word anymore. Unless they're familiar, or maybe the story is even familiar, but you don't know how much of it's been altered, and so you're trying to stand on the word. That's a pretty important thing as a Christian, to be able to lay hold of the promises of God and 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 apply the promises of God to your the storm that you're in. But your trust has been eroded. I know mine has. I don't think I'm very different than anybody on this transmission. And then, of course, the unconvinced seizes on that, 
and says, see, the devil's really having a field day with you. He's convinced you that this ridiculous, impossible event has taken place and you've lost your faith. No, he's convinced you that this event is impossible, even though it's happening, and has given you a priori argument, which gives you fake permission to not even look into it. And your subsequent spiritual blindness is one of our biggest problems. Hey friends, I just wanted to break into this message here for one second and just share with you that being a content creator is a very challenging undertaking. Typically, folks either work full-time and do this on the side, so they're burning the candle at both ends, or you jump in with both feet like we have and you trust listeners to help support you if they can. That's us. We're on a mission. So please consider partnering with us by using the donate button below. Every small amount is appreciated, even five bucks. You can also visit our store, which is Bargaintopia. It's B-A-R-G-I-N-topia.com. And we got a variety of lab-tested, super clean supplements with free shipping. We're going to be adding custom apparel for conspiracy theorists kooks and then other extremely unique and useful things. So check us out over there. Be sure to join us for our live streams over at Wake Up or Else on YouTube. And you can find us at wakeuporelse.com. Thanks for keeping us going. Back to our message. Church leaders have become the blind leading the blind. And you know where they end up? They both go in a ditch. And we're not going with you. Uh, we would wish you that you would come to us into the hell storm that we're in, but at least it's the truth. The unconvinced, in a lot of ways, are like the Pharisees that were trying to discredit the blind guy that Jesus healed, right? They brought him before this panel, and they're like asking him all these questions like he was lying. They were trying to discredit what happened to him. And he was like, look, I don't have any answers for you. All I know is I was blind, now I can see. That's all I could tell you. <laughs> so I don't have any answers for the unconvinced. All I know is it is not misremembering. It is not mass hypnosis or confabulation or implanted thoughts. If I hear one more person tell me, oh, well, you're just confusing the platter's peanut guy with the Monopoly guy. No. That is a supposition that you have, but it's incorrect. It isn't a fact because you say it. I'm not confusing the platter's peanut guy. It's not demonic delusion. It's not a government psyop. It's not Photoshop tricks. It's real. It's really taking its toll on me, though. And probably the biggest drain is the dismissive attitude of the unconvinced. I mean, the preachers are the ones that should know better, right? How am I supposed to trust the preacher when they're going to defend sacrificing reptiles, Jesus having female breasts, men breastfeeding, two men in a bed, two women grinding, nine references to unicorns, six references to pissing against the wall, people drinking their piss, eating their dung, ejaculating like horses, God shaving female parts, Paul robbing churches, putting their money into the bank, putting the wine into bottles? No, sir. That is not my Bible. The Bible that I have is in another universe or something. I don't know where my Bible is. Either I went to a universe that has a different Bible or uh, my Bible left this universe and I'm in this 
<laughs> like I said, I don't know what it is that I'm experiencing, but it ain't misremembering. So I still believe the Bible. I just don't have it anymore. And so if you're like me in any form or fashion, this event has set you back on your heels. And we're going to look at some ways that our souls have been imperiled by this, how our minds have been offended, and our relationship with God has been jeopardized. And how are we going to overcome this? Because God always has a way of escape. Is that right? <laughs> God always grants the victory. Because some of us are on the ropes. I mean, me included. And I know there's others because I talk to you. How does it make you feel when, when something as vivid as your name or one plus one equals two can change overnight along with the entire line of history behind it? It's very unstabilizing. How in the name of Lois Lane can history change? I mean, think about that. That is like, that is like impossible. No wonder they all think we're nuts. But it's happening. I really, I've thought through with a number of different people multiple times the, this, the, the hypothesis that it's an implanted thought. And when you really drill down on it, it's, it was, it's more irrational than history itself is changing. It's so impossible. Without, we've covered it before. It's just impossible. So this is really, this is really happening, you guys. And so I hear these horrible stories of, of people talking about their attempts to share this with their family members, some aspect of this, and their family members just turn on them, you know, like uncharacteristically, right? Just humiliate them. One sister was sharing her testimony. She said that their loved ones told her she needed to go to a mental hospital. So this is really like getting hit in the head with a bowling ball. This whole thing. It's like getting a root canal while you're doing your taxes. It is really unimaginable challenges. And I know in my life, and this may bear witness with you, there have been seasons where I was really strong in my faith, where I was aware of how stalwart I was. I was in the, I was in the flow. The old timers call it, you got the victory, brother. And the attacks would come and the fiery darts would come. I'd be like, is that all you got, devil? So with all due respect to those who have the victory, their life is in order. They got the joy of the Lord. Everything's sort of on track. I'm, I'm hanging by a thread. I'm just being honest. I was asked to leave my home, and then I was divorced by my wife of 24 years. She was like, I can't handle your beliefs. So this level of rejection by her and subsequently my children has been so painful that some days it's like staring into an abyss. And some people tell me it'll get easier, but it seems to be getting harder. It doesn't help to have complex childhood trauma as well. So my message tonight is to those of you on this transmission and those who will hear by the replay who feel like you have been hit in the head with a two-by-four and you feel like your life is crumbling, it's becoming unmanageable, you have brain fog and depression, Maybe you're struggling with addiction. You certainly aren't pressing into the Lord like you have been in the past. You're estranged from your Bible. You only read it to find new Bible changes that will amuse you. And the one word that would describe your walk with God right now is apathy. 
is when all the air goes out of your tire and you just don't care. All of the news is bad to you and it's beginning to crush you. Even when things happen that seem good, like Russia backing its ruble with gold, that's a that's a black swan event for the bad guys. Uh, Hunter's laptop going mainstream. The Durham investigation started to crank out indictments. Elon Musk buying Twitter and opening it up to free speech. There's always a voice telling you it doesn't mean anything. Nothing's going to change. We're all doomed. Everyone's a shill just to draw us into complacency. So you're just drowning in negativity and hopelessness. You're not really grateful for much of anything, and you don't even enjoy food like you used to. <laughs> oh, God, help us. Now, if you're not experiencing that, you know, these crushing emotions, this message may not be entirely for you. I hope you get something out of it. But this talk is for the beautiful handmaiden of God that's still standing after faithfully walking through a crap storm that would have crushed 10 men. Okay, but you held on by the grace of God and you're still here. Someone like my friend Gina, who the first time she shared her testimony, I began to weep, not because of the unimaginable troubles that she went through with her son, but because of the cut of her jib, which is a sailing talk for how you position your sails into the wind. She was stalwart. She stood in her faith in God. And she was unscathed. Praise the Lord. This talk is for the noble son of God, where God himself has pointed to you with his finger. And he said, I want that one. But you have found it hard to rise to the occasion of being a son of God. And so you've stopped trying. And you said there's no use in pressing in anymore. What's the use? I'm never going to be able to live this life. And now all this stuff with Mandela, the food shortages coming, hyperinflation, all the mark of the beast stuff, it's just more than you can bear. But, you know, then you come to yourself and you say, no, his mercies are new every morning. Praise the Lord. He's the prodigal father, and he's waiting for me to come over the crest of the hill so he can run to me, and I will return to my father's house. Because the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, shining brighter and brighter until the full day. And you, dear soul, have a destiny to fulfill, and you refuse to lose, and so you're back, and you're not going to give up. Because if God is for you, who are you to be against you? You need to, you need to forgive yourself. And you need to accept the forgiveness of God that is extended to you until you draw your last breath. Get your journal out. Put your phone away. Get a book. Go to bed early. Start to make choices every day, a new choice in the direction of God, and just make choices. Life is one a long series of choices. There are people in this transmission that have recently prayed to God to take them home. Take me out of here, God. The constant unfixable battle that you're in is beyond anything you can bear another moment. But you know what's interesting is I know I've said those very words myself on occasion, and yet I'm still here. <laughs> How does that work? Some of you are the same. 
you prayed that prayer and you're still here. I would just like to give you a glimpse of some of the things that I know I've wrestled with in this journey, and I don't believe I'm different than a lot of people. And the first of those is, of course, God's decision to allow the Bible to become corrupted has really felt like a partial abandonment. Not a total abandonment, but certainly it feels like a letdown. Sort of a kind of God fumbling the ball. Now, I know in my mind that can't be because he's perfect in all his ways. But I'm here to tell you that we are not going to make it unless we become honest with ourselves. This is a very complicated event. The theological ramifications of the Bible being corrupted like this are staggering. (laughs) We are going to have to really embrace honesty within ourselves. Because many of us are laboring under a constant sense of loss from this. We're mourning our friend, the Bible. I mean, think of the comfort and the the role that the Bible has played in your life. And and what are we going to do about this? Well, we're going to stand on the promises. Because we can still get meaning out of the scriptures. I'm doing it every Sunday here. And these scriptures are still blessing me. I don't know about you. This promise that when things are overwhelming me like a flood, when the enemy will come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. So to me, this is God promising us that he's going to match energy with energy. It's going to get darker, but so is God's power going to get more empowering. We need to look for it. We need to exercise our sonship towards it and adopt the two spies mentality. Okay, the 10 spies went in. They were overwhelmed by the uh, opposing forces. Isn't that how you feel? Eight of them were knee-knocking. They were like, oh, we're like a grasshoppers in their eyes. But two of them were like, we're well able to take the land. And the Bible says of them, they had a more excellent spirit. Don't you want to be that? I know that things are dark, but we are called to walk into the storm in victory with our chest held high, our chin up, and shout in the victory. David comes down from the field, and he sees the Israelites cowarding because of Goliath. He's like, Psh. he was like a boy. He's like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the army? <laughs> Hallelujah! We need to get clear on the nobility the robe of righteousness that has been given to us by King Jesus. And he said, all power and authority is given unto me. Then he goes like this, go therefore, deputized by King Jesus. I think it was Spurgeon that said, it's almost as if God does nothing lest men pray. What does the future hold? Perhaps it depends on us to some degree. That which is written will come to pass, but when? Maybe our victory spirit, our overcoming spirit, will determine the time frame of the judgment that's coming. The other promise is this promise that God will sweep in when you're in need. When my father and mother forsook me, the Lord will take care of me. How will a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereunto, according to thy word. 
I have hid thy word in my heart, Lord, so I would not sin against you. How do we make it? We find these promises, and then we, we bring them before God in prayer. Come, let us reason together. That's what God says. Lord, you said that when my father and mother forsook me, then you would take care of me, and I'm just drowning out here, Lord. The Bible's changing. My family's freaked out, and I'm really struggling. And I thank you now that you're going to take care of me. And I thank you that you lift up a standard, Lord, when the enemy comes in. like, And you begin to stand on the promises. And you exercise your sonship. And that, of course, goes for daughtership. Well, you know, you're a son of God. I'm the bride of Christ. So it's even. <laughs> oh, hallelujah. God really helped me in the beginning there. I still feel his Holy Ghost. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Another consequence, though, of this Bible change thing is fear. And a lot of folks don't really want to admit that, or it's an unrecognized battle with fear. But this is a very perilous snare, this Mandela effect. And you may not have acknowledged it to yourself, but inside you're questioning, how am I going to stay connected to God now without the Bible? Or how will I make it in my walk with God without the Bible? Well, that's fear. And so how, how do you overcome that fear of not having that source, that resource of Scripture that you can trust in? Well, I asked the Lord that, and he led me to John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Because I said, Lord, is there anywhere in the Bible where it was like the words taken away, and then you give us something in exchange for it. <laughs> Look at this. It's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Well, this is Act 2. We're getting this again. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's expedient for you that the Bible changes. For if, I, if the Bible doesn't change, the comforter won't come, or you won't be delivered from your idolatry. Of, of head knowledge. But if I allow the Bible to be changed, you'll return to me. <laughs> Hallelujah. It's all victory. It's always victory with God. There's no defeat in God. Just got to find, navigate to it. And then, of course, 1 John 2, 27 has never been more potent. It's so potent. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. You do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. I was talking to Carl today. He's like, the, the apostles were not walking around with a 50-pound Gutenberg Bible. I was like, that's so true. <laughs> that is so true. All right, so Jesus had to go so the comforter can come. We're living that now. So let's, let's just roll with it. God, I accept your terms. Say that with me. God, I accept your terms. He is ruining the universe, by the way. So we're going to go with it. And then, God, thank you that the anointing that I have received remains in me, and I don't need anyone to teach you. I can make this without any kind of Bible. If I'm in a missionary situation, 
I'm in the jungle, you know, trying to reach the uh, tribe, you know, that doesn't have a Bible, and I lose my Bible. I got no Bible. You know, there's all kinds of people have no Bible in this world, and they're doing just fine with the Lord. So this here, you know, may be kind of new marching orders. I don't see any other alternative. I know I'm not advocating we forsake scriptures. I mean, you don't see me doing that. But, you know, in addition to fear that this has caused, we're also conflicted by frustration with the Bible. On the one hand, we long for the pure milk of the word. But on the other hand, our relationship with the Bible has become a little adversarial. Definitely a frustration of trying to read scriptures. And as I come across a passage that I know is unfamiliar, I know, man, how do you describe the feeling? It's kind of like being violated. Like I've stumbled across some intruder in a home invasion or something. So what do you think the solution to that might be? Standing on the promises. So I said, Lord, what's the, what's the solution to the conflict that so many of us have with our Bibles now? And this passage came up in my spirit right away. So I really feel like this was the Lord, okay? I immediately saw this story of Philip when he went to the eutych. And listen to what it says. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. Okay, so the first answer to your struggle with your Bible is you're going to have to begin to trust not second-guess the Holy Spirit's voice on the inside of you. You're going to have to learn to discern the difference between, well, that's just me, the voice of the flesh, which is different. The flesh has a voice. I'm hungry. I'm tired. Or the busyness of your mind, that's different. Or the devil, he has a voice. And then there's the Holy Spirit. Just four voices. <laughs> and you got to learn to hear the Holy Spirit's voice and get specific instruction like this go near and overtake this chariot. Very specific direction. All right. But then the other thing, the next idea is maybe a little controversial to some, but I believe it is the mind of God because we're already doing it. And this is a reliance on the consensus of the community. I'm not talking about a guru or a cult leader, okay? This fellowship, other fellowships are not a cult any more than a Baptist church or a Pentecostal church down the street is a cult. I mean, the, the unconvinced call us heretics because they can't see past their little doctrine that the Bible can't change. And really, they're the very elect being deceived. We're, we're out in the open. We're very inclusive to naysayers. Cults are very secretive right? That's not us. We just disagree with you. And your response is to call us names and then engage in all kinds of ad hominem attacks, change the subject. You're, you're very irrational the way you're dealing with this topic. We don't get anybody that will debate us or talk to us at length. It's like ostriches. They just stick your head in the sand and just avoid this thing. It's very odd. Not sure how to help you. If you're like a, a pastor or somebody, you really think you might want to talk, look at this, I would need about three hours. You'd have to give me an open mind and about three, block out about three hours. And then I think I could help you walk through 
there's about five or six things that would block the average person because 99% don't see this. I think maybe 98, 99%. It's staggering. The ones that see it, see it like that. Boom. I always think of this lady that chatted me up. She was like, I'm 75 years old, and I read my Bible, and I saw they put the money in the bank, and I immediately knew that was never in my Bible. How does she go from zero to 60 like that? I don't know. How does she come to the conclusion after walking with the Lord for a half a century that her Bible could be changed because she saw one scripture changed in there? Integrity, that's a whole other conversation. I keep talking to the unconvinced. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right. So how are we going to deal with the Bible going sideways? You have to learn to hear and trust the voice of God. That's the only answer. All right. So another challenge that I don't think we really talk about openly is the controversy with other people in the Mandela Effect community. Now, this community is very diverse. And there are a lot of people at all different levels of sanctification and commitment to Christ, and there are many that have no testimony for Christ at all. I mean, we're glad you're here. We're, we're equal opportunity Christian fellowship. Come come one, come all. But the, the, the Bible being eroded like this has really collapsed any kind of availability to have accountability, which has been like the centerpiece of church government like from the beginning. So anybody that disagrees with somebody is like, well, I don't believe that was ever in the Bible. So how do you govern a fellowship? It's really, it's like flying without a net. This is really perilous. Because someone says, well, that passage is a Bible change. And then you say, well, I remember that like 30 years ago vividly. That's not a change for me at all. And then they get upset. They try to tell you, well, that's impossible. And you have an implanted thought and they get offended and then you get offended. Everybody's offended. <laughs> Everybody's offended. Lots of conflict, lots of offense. So you got persecution within the community. And then of course, the unimaginable challenge of persecution from the unconvinced, especially your loved ones. I don't really know where to begin with this one. The persecution that we have seen from our families and friends, our Christian brothers and sisters, and especially church leaders, has been for me the most difficult part of this. It's caused the most loss and the most sorrow and the most bewilderment. Because we think, first of all, how could they not see this? I remember early on when I stood up in the church and I walked out, I was so appalled that these men of God are are speaking these scriptures that are so wrong and nobody's going, hey, wait a minute. They're just rolling on and on and on and I couldn't take it anymore. That really upset my wife. She felt abandoned. I, I understand. But see, I understand them, but they do not understand us. They think we're deceived. They don't know that this is really happening and how impactful it is to us. I mean, some people, when they saw that the Bible was changing, they were in a state of shock for months, they couldn't even function. <laughs> so your loved ones have no clue what you're going through. Not a clue. But it's worse than that because not only do they not see, they don't want you to see. They don't like you anymore because you see. 
Let me say that again. They don't like you anymore because you see. So in the beginning, they tolerate you, but then they begin to threaten you. And I know this is true because it's what happened to me and it's a thousand people I've talked to. So I'm not exaggerating, all right? They say that they will withdraw their love from you if you don't become silent about it. So they put a muzzle on you. It's called censorship. It's like a modern-day book burning on your life. They are on a mission to eradicate anything that disturbs their worldview. Their happy life is more important than the truth, and they will sacrifice their relationship with you to maintain their happy life. They now see you as a threat to some degree. You are certainly seen as toxic, and they see you as deceived, and they see you as being shrouded in shame. They look at you with shame and regret for being so gullible and dim-witted. That's what they just told the sister I was listening to. They said, you should go to a mental institution. You have somehow become a boob to them, a total victim of deception that could have easily been avoided if you weren't so insecure because insecure people gravitate to these conspiracy theories because it makes them feel important. That's what the CIA told them in 1962. So they resent you for being a weak-minded person and causing all of this unnecessary disharmony. <laughs> That's what's going on in their minds. So your convictions that these things are taking place causes them to begin to view you with disdain. You have become odious to them. Now, there's all degrees of that, but that is certainly what's going on in their thinking. You've become a pariah in your own home, an off-scouring, someone whose train is going off the tracks. In your mind, I'm sorry, in their mind, you have bubbles in your think tank, and you're a few cards short of a full deck. So then they, what they do, they realize they can't convince you, because once you see, you can't unsee, right? So they, they realize after a while, you're serious about this. And, and they realize they can't reach you. So they, they start to try to manage you. And, of course, they're afraid to look into Flat Earth or Mandela or any of these things because normies don't look into anything. They don't want to look under the hood and see the boogeyman. So they just they keep looking around. <laughs> they won't go there. So instead of engaging you using reason and having intelligent discourse, they just demand your silence with kind of an or else condition. So stop talking about that crazy stuff or uh, we won't have a relationship anymore, right? If you've had ultimatums given to you by spouses, children, friends, or church members or church leaders, please post it in the chat as I'm continuing on here and I'll start to put them up on the screen. You were told in no uncertain terms, shut up or we're through. In the chat, all right? And so you're forced then, when that happens, you're given the ultimatum. You're forced to choose between what you know to be true and a sense of responsibility to warn people and a sense of responsibility to bear witness to the truth before God and your desire to be happy. 
have integrity or be happy. Be a liar, live a lie, or be happy. That's what you're, the options you're given. Okay, so let me just pause here. Christian Soldier, I have been told that by my wife. Here's Ceiling Fan Man. One of my sons disowned me because of my views. Okay, here's Sonia. I have, my husband doesn't want to hear any of it. How does that make you feel, Sonia? I mean, is that reverence? Many times, John, family and Christians. Here, this is so, oh my gosh. I miss having intelligent conversations with my family and friends. I can't even talk about the weather since I know it's being geoengineered. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe I'll share my list of things I can't talk about that I'm going to give to my family. Because they've all told me, if you talk about crazy things, I can't have a relationship with you. But they, and then I say, well, what's crazy? And then they can't define it. So I did for them. I have a two-pager. And it's like the sun, the moon, the stars, the clouds, the politics. I mean, it's everything. Kava, I've been kicked out of Bible studies. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Jesus, help us. My Christian friends thinks I've lost it. Graham's gold. Whew. Here's one. Guideline strike. I got kicked out of a 12-year relationship for my beliefs. So this is not just me. J-Dub. It hurts. Just yesterday, my dad said he wants nothing to do with me. Ergo, the title of this message, The Unimaginable Challenges Caused by the Mandela Effect for the Believer. So, yeah, this is a pretty universal uh, thing where you're, you're basically given these ultimatums. And I don't really, you know, I don't blame anybody that chooses to be happy. I wouldn't wish what I'm going through on anybody. But it is certainly by far, to me, the most difficult consequence of this phenomenon. Because you can't force your loved ones to want to know about it. So you have to choose between living a lie, basically, to keep the peace or alienating everyone that's dear to you and then have a sense that you're obeying God. That's the way I felt. So then there's this great chasm of, of emotional distance between you and your spouse and your loved ones, your children. I would say that divorce is fairly common in this community and you know, among those who have spouses that don't see and you see. Or a lot of people are on the verge of divorce. There's a, a huge problem if you have kids and you're both Christians and you're trying to raise your kids. And one sees the changes and one doesn't. How do you do that? And then attending church is if you're still in a church and you're going to church and you see the changes your spouse doesn't. Oh, my gosh. And you know what was so mind-boggling is when I left my house, I actually stayed with my brother for about a year. And, and he said it was really hard living with me. I never said boo to him. And I said, I never said anything to you. He said, I know. Just knowing what you believe, it was hard. So it doesn't matter if you're even obedient to them, right? You, you, in other words, you knuckle under and you obey their edicts and you never say boo. You never come out of hiding. You're a secret agent for God. And you never say anything and you laugh every time they talk about superheroes and the and his, how beautiful the sunset is, even though it's a fake sun and it's made of chemtrails and it looks like an alien landscape and the sun's not 93 million miles away because the sunlight's coming in at an angle and you're seeing all these things 
and you have to go along with them because they're ooing and aahing over the sunset. Even if you do that, it doesn't matter. You're still a freak because you've told them. Earth is flat. Mandela effect is real. You've told them already. You told them all the stuff. <laughs> so they know you're a freak. You're on the fringe. You're a fringer. And you can't, you can't walk it back. So, you know, these, these differences, are they seem irreconcilable. Now, there are those that seem to be able to maintain their marriages when one spouse doesn't see, but it is difficult at best. I mean, it's, it's a process. First, first, there's disrespect. Then there's rejection. Then there's isolation. Then there's loneliness. Drill, D-R-I-L. Disrespect, rejection, isolation, loneliness which is what led me to create the cell groups so people could have, you know, a voice. They could find expression and acceptance and affirmation and validation because we feel very misunderstood. We're not, we're not like wringing our hands and, and this is an oh me, oh my club, okay? This is real persecution. And a lot of us, I know I've felt anger at my loved ones for being dismissive and being cynical. And loving their deception, that's really frustrating to me. Why do you love being deceived? Why won't you talk about it? Why, why do you keep burying this topic? It's important. So I'm upset with them because they love their deception. And then, of course, you're bewildered by the church leaders. You're angry with them because they should know better. I mean, of all the people in the world, they should be the ones seeing this first. But instead, you bring it to them and they just embarrass you. They attack you. They send you on your way. <laughs> How many stories have I heard where the person got their little list of Bible changes and they were all confident that the pastor was going to be like, wow. You know, and they just, the meeting lasted like eight minutes or whatever. <laughs> oh, Jesus. You know, a lot of people made the decision to, to leave the church. It wasn't your first choice. You love church. You did love church. You got saved in a church. You miss the fellowship and the worship and the serving, right? And the belonging and the friendships and the potlucks. It's a beautiful thing. Don't tell me it's not a beautiful thing. But this thing came in, you know, the change happened. And, and we're so conflicted. Because in a sense, we have this burden for our brothers and sisters to be freed from not noticing this like Trojan horse that snuck into the church right through their own Bibles. But your burden for them continues to be thwarted by like 99% of the believers you talk to. So you're just frustrated. You can't even bring yourself to try anymore. You certainly can't go get along to go along. All, all, most of us have tried that. In other words, you, you, you keep attending the church as a secret agent. So you pretend you're like them, and you pretend the Bible is perfectly fine. And then you sit there in your seat listening to the pastor misquote the Bible, or even worse, they quote it the way they remember it. They, they real-time self-correct it. And they ignore what's actually written on the page because you have the same translation as them. So you know they're not actually reading it the way it's in their book. They're reading it the way they remember it, but yet they won't acknowledge that what's happening. 
So that becomes a really uh, an integrity issue. And then you start to lose trust. They can't see, they don't want to see, and they won't try to see. We don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. I wish there was a surefire way to get people to see this, but it seems to be as elusive as anything I've ever seen. So maybe if I can shed some light on this, uh, it'll help you maybe avoid what happened to me. Because of all the roadblocks that people have to accepting this, nothing seems to have more influence on people than the idea that the Bible cannot change. I mean, that's right out of the gate. As soon as they realize what you're proposing, my Bible can't change. I mean, this the, the meeting's over, man. <laughs> it's like, boom, you're out of here. So I think if we get a little bit of a grid for that mindset, it might help us unravel that for some folks because you can basically address these uh, these concepts before you disclose what it is that you're talking about. That's a really important idea. These are the main things that I've identified why people believe the Bible can't change. Because, see, if they did believe the Bible could change, then your evidence will be more influential. The reason you show them, you know, Bible change after Bible change, and they just, it's like a deer in the headlights, is because they're not willing to consider it as proof because they've already decided this can't happen. So your proof is irrelevant. Okay, so the first reason they believe the Bible can't change is because they believe the scriptures teach that the scriptures can't be changed. That's really the main reason. Then they have an assumption that the devil wouldn't be able to change the scriptures because he doesn't have enough power. Similarly, uh, the assumption that God would not allow it because it would violate his righteousness or any of his divine perfections in some way. So you'll hear things like, my God wouldn't allow the Bible to be changed. And actually, another one I didn't put in here is that God is greater than the devil. So the devil is weaker than God, so he couldn't do it, or God is greater than him, so he wouldn't allow it, or he could stop him. So there's this sense that, you know, if we claim this, that the devil is somehow overpowering God, what they don't realize is God is allowing him to do it. God said he would allow him to do it. So even though God is more powerful than the devil, doesn't mean he won't allow the devil because he allows free will all the time. There's something like 800,000 children go missing in the United States alone every year. And I won't go into the details of what happens to them. Well, that's a demonstration of free will being allowed to do horrible things. So if you apply that to the Bible, though, you still have this problem that there's supposedly the teaching of Scripture that the Scripture can't change. But we're going we're gonna to drill down on that for our own edification. Okay, but then you have the assumption that because the ramifications of this would be so dire, God would not allow it. So in other words, God wouldn't allow this to happen because it would be really bad. Well. Is that true? Is that scriptural? Has God allowed really bad things to happen? It's just an assumption. It's just, it's like Peter injecting himself between Jesus and the will of God. Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. Peter's like, no, you are not, not over my dead body. <laughs> and he got his hand slapped because he was trying to apply his 
sentimentalism, his human sentiment to the will of God. That's all this is. God wouldn't allow it. Well, you make yourself smarter than God, dear soul, because he said he would allow it, and he allows all kinds of things. Lastly, the assumption that because the ramifications of this would be so bad that I don't want it to be true, so I'm going to stick my fingers in my ears like a five-year-old and go, na, 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 na. Now, I've already reviewed this topic in detail here with this passage or this video, I mean. And I'm actually going to do another one. I started working on it where I go through every scripture that seems to teach that the Bible can't change. And we're going to look at each one in context in the light of what we know. Because, I mean, this is just me talking. I believed that the Bible couldn't change. And so I came and I found out, you know, Monopoly guy had no monocle. And I found out Chuck E. Cheese has an S. And I found out Cliff Notes is now Cliff's Notes. So I was, I was already convinced that the Mandela effect was happening before I even knew that the, it was affecting the Bible. So when I came to the Bible, it was easy for me to accept that the Bible is changing as well even though it violated my long-held doctrinal position. I went back to the Bible with an open mind and re-examined the teachings that I had heard all my Christian life, 40 years, from the pulpit. This is the eternal Word of God. It's unchanging. Well, that's sort of correct, but it was sort of misleading at the same time. So here's a summary of why I believe the Bible can change. All right, and the first one is what I just said. I believe it can change because it's changing. So I'm going back in the scriptures and find the passages which will support my position. And if I can't, or let's say I found passages that clearly teach scripture can't change, I would not be here talking like this. I wasn't able to find any. So, number two, I believe as others in Orthodox Christianity that the scriptures um, are being used to teach, the, the scriptures that are being used to teach that the scripture can't change are being misapplied. Now, that's not just me. There are different people, groups within Orthodox Christianity that also see that as well. And this is before Mandel effect. So, the idea that the Bible doesn't teach that the Bible can't change is not a new topic. All right, I believe the Bible can change because we have been able to find several passages of Scripture that seem to clearly indicate that this would happen. So we were, as Christians, we all were like, God, if this is, if this is really happening, you're going to have to show me in Scripture or else I'm not going to believe it. Well, <laughs> we found prophecies. Then we found Enoch. Enoch is no joke, all right? He definitely is quoted in the book of Jude. His writings are quoted in the book of Jude. And then, of course, he was a patriarch in the Old Testament. So his writings are at least prophetic, and he describes the Mandela effect. I'm going to show you in a second. And then, of course, we have mountains of evidence that things other than the Bible are changing, like movie lines, geography, anatomy, spelling of words. It's all changing. Then... We believe the Bible can change because we have seven different kinds of proof that reality is changing, eight if you include the Bible code. So this whole idea that we're just misremembering is a non-starter because we're not just relying on our memories to prove this.
For instance, we have flip-flops. Flip-flops is almost like we watched it happen real time. Tidy Cats, Houston, we have a problem. The Flintstones lost his T, and then a year later or something like that, it came back. And now, actually, Chuck E. Cheese flip-flopped, and I have residual from when I did a video when it flipped the first time, and I have a video with a timestamp that's impossible based on the present reality. So I personally have residual evidence from a video I personally did. Nobody can tell me nothing. Case closed. Thank you very much. Jordan fades back. Swish. Absolutely happening. Well, you're just misremembering. You're a liar. <laughs> you are an uneducated, uninformed liar. It's not true. I believe the Bible could change because there appears to be passages that indicate that even if there was providential preservation, it was modified by a time limit. That's a whole other topic. All right, so you've got Amos 8, of course, is clearly tied to a future event through a celestial event. I did a whole video on that. I researched that quite extensively before I released that video. I found three or four other full messages that I listened to by other preachers on Amos 8, and they all agreed independently that this can be interpreted as a future prophecy. In other words, it wasn't already fulfilled because it has a celestial time marker associated with it. In that day, what day? The day that the sun stops in the sky in midday. That's the day that I will send a famine of the land. Well, that has happened. We've had this event take place. And furthermore, it's, I believe, Revelation 8. This celestial event is mirrored in Revelation 8. It says the same thing that Amos says in Revelation, that the sun will stop at noonday. Well, that ties Amos to a future prophecy. So very easily I can embrace Amos 8 as a famine of, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. It's not just regional. It's everywhere. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. Except in here, the lion is still tucked in my heart. Thank you very much. Judge not, lest ye be judged, is still in my memory. It's in my heart. And that is the word of God. That which was given to the original authors and has not been affected by the Mandela effect is the immutable word of God. It's the only conclusion I can come to. And of course, Daniel 7, I've treated this at length. It's clearly talking about the slew foot here, the Antichrist. And what is he going to do? He's going to seek to change times and laws. I don't care what the commentary says. How could they know about the the Mandela effect. So they're calling it, you know, calendars and blah, blah, blah. No, it's way more exotic than that. Space-time and the law of God. This is one of the original meanings of this word is the law of God. So it, it's right there. He's going he's gonna to seek to change space-time and the Bible. <laughs> I'm sorry. But I got I to gotta go with it. Because guess what? Time and the Bible are changing. So it's certainly feasible. 
All right, then Enoch comes along and he describes it to a T. Thank you. And of course, if you read the first sentence of Enoch, chapter one, verse one, by the way, Enoch, this is not for you. This whole thing I'm giving you is not for you. It's for the people that will live in the end days. So this right here is Enoch chapter 80, and it's for you. In 2022, all things on the earth shall alter and shall not appear in their time. Where did we just hear that? He will seek to change time. Go back to Enoch. All things on the earth will alter. Lion in the lamb becomes wolf in the lamb and shall not appear in their time. So not only will the things change, but space-time behind them, the whole timeline changes. Enoch was cooked up, baby. He, he knew what time it was, man. Enoch had the direct hookup. God was like, I cannot take you anymore. I love you so much. Come up hither. Boom. And it says, and Enoch walked with God and was not. Boom. He had his own little personal rapture. It's crazy over there. And then, of course, he goes on to describe another known Mandela effect, which is the fruit. And in those times, the fruits of the earth shall be backward. And we have bananas growing up. And most people remember bananas growing down. And, of course, we have residual evidence. I can't pull it up right now, but we have this one video of uh, from, like, the 1960s of in Cuba, and it pans by this dock, and you see all these bunches of bananas, and they're all growing down. Never did that happen. Never did bananas grow down in this, in this reality, except on that video. Where did that video come from? How does that video exist? Why is that video showing bananas growing down? That's impossible. Bananas don't grow down. Well, maybe there's some truth to this phenomenon. So the scriptures teach the scriptures can't change. That's the first problem. So when you go to this, I listen to all the Bible theologians teach on this topic, and they cover a lot of different subjects when they're trying to make their point. I'm like, get to the point. This topic is like mind-bending. Can the Bible change, or is the Bible changeable? That's all I want to know. It's really complicated, and they... They have all these daisy chain arguments, right? And and uh, spend a lot of time on inspiration of Scripture. Well, I, I don't dispute that. It's God-breathed. It's not just stories. You know, God wrote the Bible through men. I get it. But that doesn't prove that the Bible can't change. So it's almost like making such an emphasis on the inspiration. They're insinuating that because God inspired it, then God wouldn't allow it to change, like it's sacrosanct. Or because God inspired it, the devil wouldn't have the power to change it. But the devil doesn't have the power to sneeze unless God allows him. That's not in question. What's in question is is God's divine perfections in any way um offended if he allows free will? Apparently not. Because what we're actually talking about here is very simple. It's inerrancy. That's all I want to know, is what I have today in my Bible that's on my coffee table, the same words that were given to Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Moses 
has what was given to the original authors been preserved and is the same as what I have in my book? That's basically inerrancy. And my answer to that is, for many passages now that I have in my Bible, it is an emphatic and unfortunate no. And this has not been done through naturalistic means, such as corrupt translations being published. It has been supernaturally altered, more along the lines of Pharaoh's magicians turning a staff into a snake, using whatever means that we don't know. We have guesses, CERN, D-Wave computers, black magic, who knows? But what we know is that we woke up one day in a, you know, 20... 16 or whatever, and our life was turned upside down. On this point, in summary, I do believe it is correct to say that the Word of God can't be changed. The Word of God is immutable, which means it will come to pass. Mutable means what has been said will happen. It's unchangeable. Like God is immutable. The devil can't scratch God's throne. He is from everlasting to everlasting, I am the Lord, I change not. And what God says will come to pass. His word will come, will not come back void. The word of God is inerrant and it's accurate. But we have to make the distinction between what has been recorded on paper and is in our possession and the original autographs, which were given, and then prior to being impacted were written on our hearts. Those words remain immutable and inerrant. I mean, we're forced to make some sort of distinction like this. We have no choice. Let me show you how you can how you can have a better feel for this. All right. So here is all the different ways that the Bible refers to the gospel, the gospel of salvation, the gospel of the kingdom the gospel of the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of the gospel. I mean, do all these gospels mean the exact same thing? Are they all interchangeable like Scripture and the Word of God are, we're being asked to believe are interchangeable? Look at how the Bible describes itself. When you go into the scriptures and you look at how it refers to itself, what you find is there are a variety of terms used to describe itself. And I would suggest that some of these words are not interchangeable. Some of them are the same, like scriptures and holy scriptures, or the writings or that which is written. Those are obviously the same. And then you have the sacred books and the scrolls. Of course, in order to understand the meaning of these terms, you'd have to look at them in context. So, for instance, the sacred books that Daniel's talking about are certainly different from the scrolls that Paul is talking about, but they're generally in that same category of just naturally describing these uh, physical parchments or books. But the difference that I want to focus on is the difference between the term scriptures and the term word of God. The word of God and scriptures. So when you go into the gospels, you can find that the story is called the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. And then it refers to itself as scripture. And have you not read this scripture? 
Mark 12, John 19, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. So you've got the gospel and then you've got scripture. And then you have the Bible referring to itself as the word of God, making the word of God of none effect. Luke 8, 11. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. And then this passage in Acts 6, verse 7, and the word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And the great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. When I read that, that really jumped out at me. The word of God increased. So I started to think about it. I, I've seen passages where people's faith increased or where Jesus increased in wisdom or where the word of God increased, but not where the scripture increased. So I make that observation. Seems to have a different connotation. It doesn't seem to make as much sense if these two things, Scripture and the Word, are interchangeable. For instance, and the Scripture increased doesn't appear in the Bible, and it doesn't seem to make sense. Whereas the Word of God increased seems to be talking about its influence, its acceptance, its impact increased. What does that mean? And the Word of God increased. Look at it again. And the Word of God increased. And the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem. It seems to have a different meaning than the writings or the parchments. The Word of God, the Scriptures. It's talking about a, a power, a realm of force that's being influenced on people. Scripture seems to make a distinction between the two over and over. And you really wouldn't notice it unless you were looking for it like we are. So you have the logos or the written word is the scripture, but then the rhema or the spoken word is what the scripture is referring to when it says the word of God will not change or it abides forever. What was given to the original authors and written on our hearts will not change. And we recognize that as the word of God. So when it says thy word, O Lord, is forever settled in heaven, or whatever passages are used to insinuate that Scripture can't be changed, it's referring to the Word. There are no passages that say, the Scripture, O Lord, will never change. The only passage that seems to come close to that is, and the Scripture cannot be broken. But that is clearly talking about obedience. You have to look at that in context and see that what it's saying is that that there will be no disobedience to the Scripture for those who follow God. All right, so this Scripture versus the Word idea is clearly delineated in John 5, where you see Jesus saying, Pharisees, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are those which testify of the Word. The Scripture is not the same as the Word. The Scripture is testifying of the Word, because Jesus clearly is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then in verse 14, it tells us that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word is a person. The Word is the eternal utterance of God from his lips to the original authors. That was inspired. That was eternal. That was immutable. It'll come to pass. But 
free will by God's divine perfection of allowing free will overrode the utterance to remain for all the dispensation of time. So, so there's, there's um, different dispensations within the church age. And the one that just ended was the one where the canon was intact. We have now entered a new dispensation, I believe the final one, where the canon is no longer like it was with a nice little bow, right, that we've had all our Christian life. Because think about it. Was the Bible in heaven since the beginning? Because if the Scripture and the Word are the same, then the means that— the Bible was actually in heaven from the beginning of time, which, I mean, in some unimaginable way it may have been, but I think you understand my point. All right, and then this is actually another picture of these two things as separate, but side by side. Exodus thirty-one eighteen, And when he had made an end of speaking with him, that's God speaking to Moses, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So here you have the Word of God pictured together with Scripture. Let me read it again. This is God talking to Moses on Mount Sinai. And when he, God, had made an end of speaking with him, that's the Word of God, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, that's the Scripture. That, I believe, is the only answer that I can come to, if you're a Bible scholar and you can clear all this up for us, my email is pleasewakeuporelse at gmail.com. And um, if I'm completely deceived and, and misinterpreting the scriptures, I would appreciate you rescuing me. Uh, but since in six years now, no one ever has come forward once, I think that what I'm saying has some validity. Right, because this this next assumption is that the devil wouldn't be able to change it because he doesn't have enough power. But of course, God gave him the power. In Revelation 13, it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given over all kindreds and tongues and nations. He does wonders. You know, what's a wonder? It makes you go, no way. Well, that's the Mandela effect. And then of course, it even describes him as having all power. I don't believe the devil has that much power. Well, I'm sorry, but you don't know your Bible because it says that he will have all power. And this this offends so many because we're construed as glorifying the devil. But all we're all we're doing is we're not being ignorant of his devices. Right? You're underestimating the devil, and therefore he's snuck into your church. We are watchmen. We're trying to alert you. We're not glorifying the devil. We're actually glorifying God because God requires truth in the inward parts. Because they receive not the love of the truth. And then this passage, who can make war with him? That's an indication that he's got some really interesting tricks up his sleeve. All right, the assumption that God would not allow it because it would violate his righteousness or his divine perfections in some way. Well, you know what this passage tells you? God could do whatever he wants. He doesn't answer to you. Now, he won't lie. He won't violate who he is. 
But in Isaiah, he says, I make known the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purposes will stand. I will do what I please. Remember that whole speech he gave to Job? Oh, man, where were you when I set the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I set the foundations of the deep? So God needs to put the naysayer in his place and be like, look, give me chapter and verse or quit telling me that the devil doesn't have much power, okay? Chapter and verse or just repent because it's not true. You don't know your Bible if you're telling me that the devil can't do this. Look, let me show you again, okay? Here. And it was given unto the devil to make war with the saints. Well, why can't that be interpreted as he would be allowed to change the Bible? This this overcomes any providential preservation that you might think you have that the Bible can't change. It's a trump card. It's a modifier. Just like Revelation 22, verse 11, I think, seal not the words of the prophecy. Do not protect the Bible from Satan. God says, I'll do whatever I want. The assumption that because the ramifications of this would be so dire that God would not allow it. Well, this chapter, Revelation 22, is really dealing with this Mandela effect thing. And one of the things that was revealed to us is this is a judgment on the church and the world. God is not playing. And, 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 and in this vision of what's happening, this passage here may be referring to the ramifications of the Mandela effect. When you take out this influence of the Bible, people, as Jonathan Edwards say, will find themselves to be very disadvantaged, <laughs> to say the least. And so you're stuck in your spiritual state because you don't have the Bible anymore. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. Your argument that God wouldn't do it because it would be a big problem is correct. It will be a big problem, but it doesn't mean that God won't do it because he says things like this. It's a judgment. It's supposed to be a big mess. And then lastly, the assumption that because the ramifications of this would be so bad that I don't want it to be true. Now, this is should have been the first one. This is, to me, this is the number one reason why people refuse to consider this. It's because it's too painful for them. And that's why we read these words from Jesus. And in them, talking about these people here that won't look at this, in these types of people who are going, nah, 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 the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and you shall not understand. Seeing, you will see, but you will not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. So what we're experiencing is nothing new. I call this a kind of a self-inflicted trauma-based mind control, okay? In other words, once people realize what you're proposing, they then realize the ramifications are so dire that they assume God would never allow it. And because to them that would be unlike a loving God, my God would never allow that, 
they get huge cognitive dissonance, which is a visceral reaction. It really jams people up because they're thinking, this is going to really disrupt my program. So they subtly at that moment, they give themselves permission to stop trying to even consider it before they get too far into it. And they decide to switch their posture secretly within your meeting there without disclosing it to you. And now they're thinking, how can I end this meeting? Because this is now a total waste of time. What you're proposing is really offending me. It's dishonoring God. There's no reason to even discuss this because it can't be true. And then, of course, they, they put it in the box of conspiracy theories and thereby giving them further permission to stop considering the evidence that it's presented to them. Because when you attack the messenger, then you delegitimize the message, right? So the topic is rejected before even considering it because people intuitively know that by embracing it, they're going to be persecuted. So they know it's not going to be happy bells. They're going to lose everything their church, maybe their family, their goodwill in their community, of course, so that, you know, you get sent packing. And this goes on over and over and over and over. What are we to do? What is a person to do? Well, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Sometimes the answer is there is no answer. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week, Lord willing. And if you'd like to learn more about how to face the inevitable pushback that comes when you start to question the official story, be sure to pick up a copy of the Conspiracy Theorist Survival Guide. It's a guidebook for persecuted truthers. It's on Amazon, or you can get it through my website, which is wakeuporelse.com. It's on audio or paperback. Be sure to sign up for the newsletter so we can be notifying you when we're doing an interactive live stream. There's a lot more content on the truther journey, as well as the supernatural Bible changes on my YouTube channel, which is wake up or else, all one word. And remember, if anybody calls you a kook or a conspiracy theorist nut, you hold up your finger and you tell them, hey, I may be mistaken, but I am not crazy.